have a couple of questions that, that are on my mind these days. Um, one of the things that I found really helpful uh, as an historian, historian of science, is actually tracing through um, what questions have even kind of uh, risen to prominence in different uh, scientific or intellectual communities in different, in different times and places. So it's fun to chase down the answers, the kind of competing solutions or, or, or suggestions of how the world might really work that lots of people have, have kind of uh, worked toward in the past. But I actually find it really interesting to, to go after the questions that they were asking in the first place. They say, what even counted as a real question? What counted as a legitimate scientific uh, question or, or subject of inquiry? And how have the questions been shaped, been framed, by, been buoyed uh, by the kind of immersion of those people asking the questions in, in the real world, in, in a in sometimes a very messy, very human, at times very bloody world. And so one, one example that, that's, uh, that's still on my mind, I've, I've, I've thought a lot about, uh, is, is this question of what to do about quantum theory. So quantum theory itself is, uh, by any measure, our most um, successful scientific theory in the history of humankind. I mean, going back as long as we choose to, to go back. Uh, predictions that we can formulate using the equations of quantum theory uh, can be formulated in some instances out to exponential accuracy. We can calculate and calculate and now use fancy computer routines to make predictions for the behavior of little bits of matter, electrons and, and other little subatomic particles, and make predictions for their properties out to 11, 12, or 13 decimal places. It's really an extraordinary level of precision. And then other enterprising researchers can can subject those uh, predictions to to real measurement on actual electrons in, in in a real laboratory under exquisite conditions and check the answers and and the the measured results and the theoretical predictions in some of these instances will match out to to a part per trillion to one part uh, in 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 ten to the twelve. So by by these kinds of measures, quantum theory is just unbelievably powerful and, and impressive. And yet, as, as so many people know and still wonder about, the, the, the story about nature, the kind of uh, conceptual picture that quantum theory uh, se seems to suggest is, is actually very far from clear. It's been far from clear now for, for about a century. Uh, and it's not that no one has any idea. It's that lots of people have lots of ideas. And so there's a real uh, sort of, to this day, a competing kind of battleground or, or, or let's just say contest of people trying to make sense of, of what these impeccable equations really imply about how the world works. Now, all that is, is to say that this is now a, a topic of, of great ongoing interest and attention among researchers uh, around the world uh, in virtually every continent in uh in laboratories and universities and, and, and on their own. And yet that basic question, what, what does quantum theory tell us about how the world works? That actually was, was kind of ruled out of court as a question, as a legitimate subject of scientific inquiry for, for large periods of time, over the century that we've been grappling with quantum theory. So we have this uh, a kind of paradox where everyone agrees that quantum theory is this crowning achievement, and yet what do we do with it, and, and what kinds of questions is it legitimate even to pose about it? Those uh, have not always been so, so uniformly um, pursued or welcomed or even acknowledged. Why did certain questions or aspects of that topic come into focus, come into a kind of legitimacy, even get, get sort of tackled by, by leading uh, members of the field? And why was it at other times it was seen as, as really something to be pushed aside? 
And then we, we, we by, we're by force, we have to begin broadening uh, our, our inquiry. It's not only about the force of individual personalities or the grandeur of, of certain ideas. We start having to ask about things like the embeddedness of this enterprise, again, in a, real, in a very real and, and shifting human world, in a world of specific institutions, in a world of shifting geopolitics, lots and lots of things about the kind of broader framing within which we try to learn about nature. Those start to come to bear. They start to help us make sense of this kind of shifting terrain of which questions even get counted as legitimate. So I find that constellation of kind of very heady, uh, curious, sometimes really quite delicious ideas, concepts that people still rightfully get to enjoy wrestling with, and then the embedding of how those concepts and the questions that lead people to grapple with them, how that becomes a kind of moving target. It becomes a much more historical, much more human story. So toggling back and forth with, with that kind of frame, I find that just really endlessly fun and, and, and very fascinating. You know, it's, it's interesting to reflect on, on, on the uncertainties that, that, that we're facing today, we, we in the large, uh, amid the, the COVID-19 crisis. You know, so many of us now are, are, are unavoidably stuck uh, in the midst of, of a kind of uh, irreducible uncertainty of the sort that I think many people aren't, aren't very comfortable with, is not very, very familiar. On the one hand, uh, as a physicist or someone who's been looking at the history of physics for a long time, you know, quantum physicists have been, have been grappling with implications of the uncertainty principle, Heisenberg's famous uncertainty principle, for, again, for very nearly 100 years. Uh, we're used to, or we've at least become accustomed to uh, necessary trade-offs. We could try to learn a lot about one thing, but necessarily know nothing whatsoever about some, some paired quantity. Uh, what does that do for our notion of how the world works, about, about making predictions for what will happen tomorrow or the next day? So on the one hand, quantum physicists have a kind of professional immersion in uncertainty. On the other hand, I don't know that we're so much better prepped to deal with, the, say, the COVID-19 situation than, than many other people, by which I mean the following. We can use our equations of quantum theory, for example, uh, with the uncertainty principle baked right in at the start, uh, to, to make actually very definite statements or predictions about how the world will work, at least under you know, uh, carefully controlled kind of laboratory conditions. And, uh, and then we can perform measurements, and we can perform not just one or two, but tens of thousands of measurements on, on, uh, on systems that we prepare in the same way. And we can do, you know, test ideas to very high statistical significance. We can really say the world really goes like this and not like that, at least not like that to, uh, to one part in a million or one part in a trillion. And, and I think that level of, of being able to frame a question carefully go out and kind of poke the world, poke the world in very carefully constrained, you know, clean laboratory type conditions and try to really sift through not one or two noisy data points, but gobs and gobs of data points to get some real bedrock confidence in the outcomes. That's not the world we're in in the human world these days. And so for all the talk about a kind of conceptual uncertainty and the uncertainty principle itself, uh, I think there's, there's on the one hand a kind of uh, familiarity with, with not just uncertainty, but with probabilities, with being limited to making probabilistic uh, predictions for the future, for the course of actions. And, and that's a, a kind of an analogy to where we all are these days with the course of the pandemic and, and how the world might eventually uh, reopen and so on. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think the physicists uh, 
with our with our luxury of of quantification and precision, I think we're we're not in that sense much better off than than I think most anyone else uh, these days. I am an historian of science, uh, and I write books and articles, and I go to archives and I interview people, and I and I try to 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 put together uh, arguments and interpretations of of. Uh, of events from the past that uh, help us inform uh, inform ourselves about the present and and so on. So I'm a, I'm an historian and I publish in history journals and I train history students and I love it. Uh, I'm also a member of the physics department uh, at MIT. I teach physics courses. I advise a, a research group in physics. So I, I actually I get to wear uh, more than one hat. So the field of the history science is it's uh, it's been a terrific. Um, uh, professional home for me and intellectual home for me for, for a long, long time. Um, most historians of science consider ourselves historians first. That is to say, we want to be able to, to craft compelling uh, interpretations and arguments about, about the past, about uh, why and how things uh, have changed in, in, in human history, recent history, distant history, really the whole, the whole span. Uh, and, and our focus is on in particular, uh, efforts to try to make sense of the world. So, so what we would now call scientific research, it's gone by other names in times gone by, uh, the fields of, of natural philosophy or, or natural history or other terms that were once more, more commonly used. But the idea of people who have been trying to form systematic knowledge about how the world works, about the study of nature, and how has that inquiry uh, unfolded? How has it changed? How, is it, how has it been embedded in, in sometimes much broader uh, human society and, and, and been buffeted by politics, culture, and, uh, and institutions? So, so uh, most historians of science, certainly these days, consider themselves historians. That means we use historical methods of research, uh, combing through the published literature, investigating unpublished uh, things, um, correspondence, notes, notebooks, grant proposals from more recent periods, uh, interviewing people, of course, if it's more recent history. There's a colleague of mine who, who likes to say that uh, the historian's job is, is reading dead people's mail, which actually captures a lot of, of what we try to do. We really are trying to, to figure out a kind of texture of lived experience and how that informed the people about whose world or, uh, we're, we're trying to kind of get our, get our heads back into. Uh, so on the one hand, it is it is an effort uh, squarely within the humanities and, and social sciences, an interpretive you know effort to make sense of the past, to make sense of human meaning making, human efforts to make sense of their world in times and places gone by. Uh, with the history science, we get to have this, I think, very uh, productive, ongoing discussion with with much more contemporary uh, events and efforts uh, in the sciences today. And so uh, why do uh, certain ideas take hold and become so prominent? Why do certain questions rise to prominence and get asked in one setting versus another? These are the kinds of, of larger questions about the, about the present day scientific enterprise that I think a lot of work in the history of science can help us better understand. It turns out there's a long history of, of researchers trying to relate their work to, to broader audiences and uh, in, for different motivations, using different media, different uh, techniques. And historians of science have learned a lot about uh, science communication among fellow scientists, between different kinds of groups. That's an example where I think some of the insights, for example, from historians of science might actually be, be uh, valuable even, even to this day. Uh, and in my own work, I, I, I get to, to play with, with these sort of ideas from, from recent physics in, in a few different 
um, in a few different ways. So uh, I, I conduct historical research. I do come through <laughs> dead people's mail and sometimes live people's mail. Uh, I get to interview people. A lot of my historical work is of fairly recent times, so I get to talk with, with people uh, more directly in email and so on. Uh, but I also uh, am, am a, a, a physicist and conduct physics research, uh, sort of for physicists' sakes, let's say. And there I get to really kind of, I, 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 I consider myself very lucky to get to kind of play with ideas that themselves have been kind of bumping along in different ways and been seen from many different angles in different times and places. So on the one hand, the historical work doesn't tell me what to do today when I wear my physicist cap, but it does, I think, sometimes give me an appreciation for how certain questions have been posed, for maybe unforeseen um, trends that could be that might might bubble up if we if we change our view and take uh, take a look from a, a different angle. Uh, and so, in that sense, I, I get to play with contemporary questions about, in my case. Theoretical physics. One of the things that historians can do for for even for contemporary scientific research is is not really to offer um, a, a better candidate answer. Uh, I don't think that's something to look for from from the historical record or from historians themselves. But they can they can help remind us of of questions or methods that had once really ignited uh, the imaginations of, of of prior generations. And if we go back to that theme of sort of chasing the questions themselves, then I think some of the questions have, have, have a much longer shelf life, let's say, than the proposed answers. Some answers look great a century on, and we're delighted to have them and put them in our textbooks and, and teach them to our students. But the answers we know in general, most answers are going to look foolish or more often just irrelevant uh, after a, a rather modest passage of time. So focusing on the answers today, the scientific, uh, the leading scientific uh, suggestions of today, um, it, it has value, but it's it's of a kind of limited value. And instead, the historian, one of the, the tasks historians can do, uh, is to is to remind us of of the questions that had once seemed so urgent. And we will see the question from a different light today than before. But there can be a kind of intergenerational continuity, a real value, a, a genuine kind of intellectual value for chasing down the kind of connections among the questions. I think even more so than, than worrying too much about, about the kind of proposed answers, which we know are going to have, I think, a much shorter shelf life. I've been thinking in recent years quite a lot about, uh, about, writing, about, about writing about science, about writing about the recent history of science, uh, and, and the, the many kinds of people we might be able to, to engage with, with such writing, or hopefully even excite, or sometimes inspire. And what are the kind of venues for that? What are the styles? What, what, what might click with one audience and, and maybe not quite land with another? I've been trying to think more explicitly about the craft of the writing itself, is what I mean to say, coming to it a bit later in my career than, than many others, but it's been on my mind a lot lately. Uh, and so in my in my career, I've written uh, a book with a, with a with a big trade press. I've written books with university presses. I've written books that were kind of specialist monographs within university presses. I've written books that were aimed uh, more like a, a trade or, or a non-specialist audience. So lots of different kinds of books. And beyond the monograph, beyond the book, I've actually really enjoyed being able to write for a variety of, of magazines and newspapers and, and, and really broader audience type venues, uh, shorter essays and op-eds and so on. And trying to really think about the the sort of the genre of the essay, which is really, you know, it's a classic form. It's not like it was just invented recently. There are some people who make it look so easy. They're just such naturals in, as essayists. There's people who can 
who can capture complicated, hard ideas uh, full of, of, of the human drama and struggle, uh, but convey that in a, in a way that respects their readers, but doesn't, doesn't expect the reader already to be an expert in the topic. And I think they're, they're, you know, I have my personal favorites, and I think we're all inspired by writers like that. And so I've been trying to think more and more about what, what kind of communication uh, it, it might be successful uh, with, with different kinds of readers and to excite different kinds of conversations. Uh, and so I think it's dearly, dearly important to be able to write the kind of focused monograph for my colleagues in the history science or, or, or students who, who are going to encounter a textbook. And that has to have lots and lots of uh, endnotes and, and, and all the so-called scholarly apparatus. I think it's exactly as important, equally as important, to be able to write both books and articles for, for broader groups of readers uh, who, who, for whom this might be the only thing they ever read about black holes or the Big Bang or quantum entanglement. Uh, or for whom, with, with luck, they would read this and then maybe be curious to, to read a few things more, uh, even though they're not going to make a career uh, in theoretical physics. Uh, and so one thing that I really find helpful in, in thinking about writing, especially for that, for that larger, uh, more mixed, kind of heterogeneous group, is thinking about humans, think about the human scale. So many of the ideas that I um, am frankly kind of obsessed with in my own research, both as, as an historian and also as a, as a physicist, they concern scales that are so different, so, so strange or so distant from the human scale. I do a lot of work on quantum theory. I've worked with colleagues on super fancy, crazy, fun tests of quantum entanglement, and that seems to be on some very tiny, tiny atomic scale. Uh, I also work on cosmology and the grand sweep of the universe from the Big Bang to today, very dramatic cosmic processes in astrophysics, neither of which sort of is easy to convey, at least as I've found, to people who aren't trained in physics or who have a, um, a kind of highly quantitative pattern of thought. And so what I find helpful is to bring humans into these accounts. On the one hand, trying to craft uh, some, some careful metaphors and analogies. So there's a human element to the investigation, to how we even came to ask those questions or muddle toward our answers. And there are sometimes some ways that hopefully don't get too cutesy, but can convey some of the real intellectual conceptual heft about processes in the world that we've now come to learn quite a lot about. But to bring it to a kind of human scale, at least to convey what we think the stakes are, what, what really genuinely keeps us up at night and gets us out of bed in the morning. There's a, 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 an importance to convey why we ask these questions so relentlessly, why we can seem so consumed and even obsessive, why we always have to come back to the public one way or another to ask for more resources to, to support what becomes very expensive scientific research in many cases, to convey why we think it matters, what we think we're after, and to convey it in a variety of forms. So sometimes for our fellow specialists, sometimes for our budding students who are going to learn so much more than we'll ever know, and, and a lot of times for for our neighbors, for our fellow readers and citizens, uh, from whom you know we, we need to enroll them too, because um, we're doing it in some sense thanks thanks to their help, often indirectly, and uh, and and I think we owe it to them. I think we scientists and and historians uh, have an obligation or responsibility to explain as clearly as we can why we think that's a worthwhile endeavor, and and those all call for for different kinds of writing, different scale of an argument, different different uh, uh, techniques for, for composition, but they're, but they're all important. And, I, and I've really enjoyed trying to 
kind of practice and get a little more uh, experience within in each of those in each of those domains. I got my start uh, in in on my kind of academic journey. Uh, I think like many, many academics do, which is say thanks to uh, a, a large number of really quite inspiring and often very patient and generous teachers and mentors. I think that's how uh, most of us really get, get our start. Uh, and so for me, I uh, had great teachers all through, even through high school and so on. And, and they saw, even as a kid, as a teenager, I was really, really, I got kind of caught by the by the physics bug. And I should say, I got hooked on that in in, in large measure thanks to some really quite wonderful popular books, books that were already uh, becoming uh, widely available and inexpensive and well-written and really super engaging and, and really grabbed me uh, during, the, 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 uh, during the 80s. Books like, uh, like Heinz Pagel's book, uh, Cosmic Code, one of my all-time favorites, or books by John Gribben. I, I encountered uh, the book of Cosmic Code when I was basically a teenager, and it, it, it's almost it's as if it didn't let me go. I mean, we talked about page turners and we use these phrases, but it was so engaging it it introduced literally introduced me to ideas some of which i still grapple with in my professional life and it did so as as some uh, some folks might might remember in a kind of historical wrapper it wasn't a a, a kind of it wasn't meant to be a, 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 an exercise in the history of science but but Pagels was so good both at finding these kind of telling analogies and metaphors to bring, again, very abstract or difficult sounding ideas to a kind of human scale and to, and to multiple kinds of readers. And he also gave at least vignettes. He captured a bit of the, of the drama, of the excitement, of the urge to know that was driving forward generations of researchers since uh, late in the 19th century throughout the 20th. I was just hooked. It was, it was absolutely a kind of gateway drug for me. Uh, likewise, uh, John Gribben had a series of really quite wonderful books already back in the 80s. Of course, he's written many, many since then that really grabbed me such that there are people I get to work with today, just jumping ahead a little bit in my professional career, about whom I literally was learning as a high school kid because they were already they and their ideas were already showing up in some of these really very high quality uh, kind of broad readership books uh, about modern physics in the 80s. So I got hooked. By the time I got to college then, I was already a kind of confirmed physics you know, uh, enthusiast. I studied physics. I had some amazing teachers and mentors there, uh, at one of whom said, you know, you're interested in these kind of human stories about how we've come to know and uh, what were things like in the earlier times. He said, there, there are people who do that for a living. They're called historians of science, which I hadn't appreciated before. So actually, one of my physics uh, physics mentors, Joe Harris, was the one who told me that if I like those additional ways of engaging with you know the study of nature, uh, go talk to actual card-carrying historians of science. And there were some marvelous ones uh, right on campus. Uh, Naomi Oreskes became uh, my, one of my most important mentors as an historian. She was a very young professor then, uh, took me under her wing. Rich Kramer was another. So even as an undergraduate, I began studying both theoretical physics and the history of science uh, pretty pretty uh, intensively, at least as an undergraduate. And then I, I following actually uh, Naomi's example, she had just finished two PhDs herself. She'd been a graduate student at Stanford, and she did a PhD in earth sciences and geology and a PhD in the history of science. And I said, oh, you know, there's at least one person who's done this. Turned out, of course, there, there, there's more than Naomi. There's now several I quickly came to learn about. Maybe I should try that too. So she was a kind of existence proof for me and a, a very direct inspiration. So at, late in college, I'd said, I like this stuff. I'd love to try to 
uh, put together an academic career if I can be uh, lucky enough to do it. And I'd like to see if I could keep these two kinds of inquiry going, if I could try to learn more and maybe contribute, both uh, as a theoretical physicist and as an historian of science. So I wound up applying to three schools for graduate school, but I applied six times. I, at each institution, I applied both uh, to the program in the history of science and to the program in physics. Uh, I was uh, enormously lucky to then get to study uh, with mentors like Peter Gallison, who was my main history advisor, and Alan Guth, who was my main physics advisor. Peter uh, had actually been Naomi's uh, mentor on the history side. It's all the same kind of uh, history science mafia. Peter had, uh, had also done two PhDs, one in physics, one in history science himself. So I, I, I was, uh, again, had the benefit of, of extraordinary intellectual mentorship, but also the kind of nitty gritty logistics. What does it mean to study more than one thing at a time? And how do you try to uh, craft a career like that? Uh, and so, so I studied both physics and the history science uh, for PhD work in graduate school. Uh, and then again, was sort of had a, a, an extraordinarily lucky break. Uh, the the academic market when I was hitting it was was pretty dismal. It's pretty dismal again today, and it uh, and so it w really was not to be counted on. But I did get a very lucky break. There was a position open at MIT. Uh, they were foolish enough to hire me, and so I've been on the faculty at MIT now for 20 years uh, as a professor both of the history of science and also a professor of physics. Uh, and so I get to work with, with students and, and research uh, collaborations of my own in, in each field. So, so that's, uh, you know, that's sort of how I got to be where I am and why I get to, to grapple with things like quantum mechanics and, and the Big Bang and black holes from, from a number of different kind of uh, points of view. Uh, these days, uh, on the physics side, I, I mostly work still with Alan, with my own uh, very dear uh, mentor from graduate days. We have a group, a research group that we advise together now in MIT's Center for Theoretical Physics, uh, and we study the very early universe, times around the time of the Big Bang, times where uh, the universe was roughly speaking about a, a, a billion, 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 billionth of a second old. Uh, it's, not, it's a very, very different kind of sense of time for what dynamical processes, what kinds of physical interactions we, we want to think about and try to study. And so there's an amazing amount that, that the whole community in cosmology has been able to learn in the last uh, 20 to 30 years. And it's a thriving field with new data coming in, new experiments and observations, and, and still you know, no shortage of really kind of uh, challenging, bizarre, and sometimes really quite delicious ideas. And so I'm still just swept up with things that I first began learning about in that sense, uh, really going back to my high school days. And on the history side, I, I'm, I'm really still very interested in how we've come to ask these questions about the universe, about the cosmos. I'm very slowly working on a book project about Einstein's general theory of relativity. Uh, by any measure, his crowning scientific achievement is probably most important scientific legacy. It's still the, the framework within which even to this day, 100 years on, we frame our questions about things that Einstein himself had never even heard of or thought about. One of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm really very excited about and I've been able to, to work on uh, for, for the last few years, it's still front of mind, uh, is trying to find uh, more and more uh, clever ways, hopefully some clever ways, to test these very strange sounding ideas about quantum theory, to, to see does the world really work that way? Are we, are we forced to take on some of these very strange sounding ideas, uh, not only because they make sense on our scratch pads, but because we have more and more evidence of more and more solid kind that the world works that way, not only our ideas about the world. 
And so one of the one of the examples of that that was just uh, really a, a highlight of, of my life, not just of my career, but of, of, of my life to date, was working on a project that we called the Cosmic Bell Experiments. This grew into an international collaboration. It started as a discussion with, between myself, a, a, a postdoc I, uh, named Andy Friedman, I had just begun working with at MIT, and one of Andy's close friends from, from their grad school days, Jason Galicchio, is now a professor of physics. It was the three of us kind of, you know, kind of shooting the breeze and wondering about uh, some some questions about quantum entanglements and, and how people have tried to, to test entanglement to see if the world works that way. And, uh, and in pretty rapid order, we were able to build that into a, an international collaboration with 20 researchers, many uh, colleagues on, on multiple continents. And, and the, the upshot was we, we found ourselves just over a year, about two years ago by now, a year and a half ago, on the top of a mountain using some extraordinary telescopes with four meter polished mirrors, you know, 13 foot mirrors, uh, these enormous, beautiful telescopes staring out in the, in the dark night sky uh, on the, the Canary Islands, the island of La Palma, taking in light every millionth of a second, every microsecond from two different, very, very distant, very bright quasars, some very kind of early stage galaxies that are very, very far uh, from us in, in cosmic terms. The light from one of those quasars has been traveling toward our telescope for 12 billion years. Our universe isn't even 14 billion years old yet. So for most of the history of the cosmos, that light had been making its way, its journey toward us that we captured just that moment, that fraction of a second. On the other side of the sky, taking in light from a different quasar that, whose light began its journey about 8 billion years ago. So really cosmic journeys here, some of the oldest light, in fact, in the cosmos. And we're taking in that light to ask a question, to ask a souped-up version of a question that physicists had been asking themselves for nearly a hundred years. And we were trying to find the most compelling evidence that we could to try to answer that question, or at least remove the range of possible answers, or you know, constrain that range uh, much more carefully than, than had been done before. And the question was one about whether quantum entanglement is a fact of the world or only an artifact of our current ideas. That is to say, uh, do, does this strange, what Einstein famously called spooky action at a distance, is that an inescapable fact of the universe? Uh, or have we somehow been kind of uh, misunderstanding a series of prior investigations and experiments? And to cut to the chase, uh, our, our ex experiments, much like the ones that have come before ours, show really extraordinary evidence in favor of entanglement, that this is how the world works, kind of like it or not. Some people still seem uncomfortable with the idea, and yet uh, the, the, the space of reasonable or logical alternatives has been really, really kind of shoved, not just into a corner on Earth, but shoved into a tiny, tiny region of space and time out of the whole universe before us. So by taking in that light on the mountaintop with these two gorgeous telescopes with our group from Vienna, from Southern California, from places in between, this, this big team, we were trying to ask this question about, about nature in some sense at its most fundamental, about pairs of particles created in special ways. Do the, do the properties of those particles uh, obey a kind of common sense? Do they obey a very sharpened sense of how the world should work as, as Einstein himself had developed? Or do they defy that? Do they, do they follow different rules? And do we just have to make our peace with it? And, uh, and our investigation, like the ones before it, showed really, I think, quite resoundingly that entanglement is, is a fact we have to just really uh, get our heads around because it's not going away. 
And so that's an example where there is a kind of historical dimension going back to the 1930s and the 1960s and sort of waves of people before us, before our current generation, thinking as hard as they could about these kinds of questions, reformulating the questions we're the beneficiary of their sharpened questions, uh, even though we might sometimes uh, come to different answers than what they expected. On the one hand, it has this historical dimension. On the other hand, we're using state-of-the-art equipment with uh, fancy, fancy lasers and microelectronics and atomic clocks down to, uh, to nearly nanosecond accuracy. So we have this kind of instrumentarium of the high modern, of the most up-to-date uh, instruments that, that uh, my colleagues could either uh, acquire or build themselves, really inspiring experimentalists. And we're bringing it to bear on questions that, that really are nearly 100 years old. And that... That was just absolutely, um, every day I got to work on that project was, was undeniably a, a day of joy. Uh, and it's a journey that we're continuing. There are more questions in that vein that we're still working to try to puzzle toward. One of my favorite things uh, that I've been able to enjoy writing, in, again, in different modes for di different kinds of audiences in different venues is, is hearing from, from folks who I didn't otherwise know, who aren't colleagues in either physics or history, aren't academics at all, who, who happened to read a short piece I'd written and it really uh, and it really caught their eye. And sometimes, for example, I recently heard from, from, a, from someone I didn't know before who told me that his father had been, a, it turns out, a very prominent, very well-known physicist at Caltech, someone whose name I knew very well, the, the father. And, and, this, this, and, the, and the person's son wrote to me out of the blue saying that this piece I'd written that he just happened to read kind of, as he put it, brought his father's life's work into focus for the son in a way that their own discussions or, or, or family lore, I guess, hadn't quite done. That he gained a, a kind of perspective, not an appreciation only, but a kind of perspective on what drove his father and his father's generation. That's an extraordinary gift to get an email like that out of the blue. You know, I, I hope that my work will will inspire some kids as I was so intensely inspired when I was a, a teenager by, by books like the books by Hans, Heinz Pagels or, or, or other authors of that time. So you hope you'll, you'll help ignite a, you know, a spark in, in some uh, very clever, eager, hardworking young folks. But to get a letter sort of from the other side as well, from a person who now himself is later uh, in his years, reflecting back on his experiences, on his family experiences, and, and the notion that I could help even just in a modest little way to help him make sense of his own world. That was just uh, really a remarkable, uh, I really cherished that email. And that's the kind of, of uh, response from many, many kinds of readers that, that, I, that I really value and that, uh, and that it helps me, you know, write, write the next piece. There's, 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 a, uh, there's a readership out there that hopefully will get something out of these, uh, these maybe quirky tales of, of, uh, of strange sounding people. And, and it's, you know, that's a real gift.